This is the Proud American Podcast, and I'm your host, Johnny Joey Jones. You know, on this podcast, I try to bring you stories and perspectives of Americans who are not just proud Americans and proud of their accomplishments, but humble in their work. People who embody selflessness, hard work, dedication, commitment, and resilience. Qualities I not only admire in people, but struggle to achieve myself. Today's guest makes these unique American qualities his everyday routine. A six-time UFC champion, a legend among legends, an army veteran, an actor, a writer, and most importantly, a proud American, my friend, Randy Couture. Brother, thanks for being on here. You bet. Great to see you. So what's, uh, you know, most people know who you are, so maybe we'll, we'll work this one backwards. What do you got going on? It looks like you're in, uh, you're in Florida right now. Is that right? Yeah, I'm down here. Uh, we're at the second of our, of our three playoff uh, fights for the Professional Fighters League. We're on ESPN tonight um, at 9 o'clock Eastern. The undercard um, and prelim fights start at 5.30, so I'll be uh, getting dressed up in my monkey suit here in a little bit. <laughs> To go over to the arena and, and do makeup and rehearsals and all that stuff before the show starts at uh, at five o'clock. And so you're you're ringside. You're you're commentating on fights now. And you used to be the guy in there doing the fighting. Do you have a little bit more grace, or uh, for the guys that used to talk about you and you fought now? Like, do you get their perspective more now? Yeah, I, you know, I always try to be positive. Uh, this is a difficult job. It's a difficult way to make a living being a fighter, getting in a cage and getting punched in the face, frankly. Uh, so, I, you know, definitely take it easy on all the competitors. Uh, I have a lot of respect for each and every person that's willing to walk those four steps up into that cage. So I think as a fighter, you know, we see things a little bit differently. We catch up, catch on the nuances and see, see details that, that the average fan doesn't see. And I think that's kind of my job as, as a commentator is to highlight some of that stuff that I recognize in, in these matchups, both technically and, and psychologically for, for these fighters. So it's, it's been fun. A lot of fun. You mean, so like when I sit here and I go, I can't believe he didn't block that kick or block that punch. I may not know everything I'm talking about. (laughs) Uh, It's a possibility. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, since we're on the subject, and it's it's obviously what you're most known for, but I think by the time we're done talking, people will learn a lot more about you. You're a six-time champion, and uh, in the the big league, the UFC, but you've been involved in wrestling and mixed martial arts your whole life. And so I guess, you know, when you made the transition from doing this in, in kind of an Olympic style, or I think you call it, is it Greco-Roman? Is that the wrestling you did? Yeah, Greco is one of the styles that I specialized in. There's two Olympic styles. There's freestyle wrestling, which is closely related technically uh, to what you saw in school, to folk style, or what we call collegiate wrestling. And then there's Greco, which is the other classic style that goes all the way back to the ancient games um, before you know they started the modern games. It's, it's one of the original styles. And all the holds take place from the waist up. Uh, so it's a little more like judo without a game. Oh, wow. You grab each other and throw each other down all the holds, you know, arm throws, headlocks, body locks. You're not allowed to grab the legs or trip with your legs in Greco. So it's a, it's a unique style. Of the three styles that I competed in, which were 
folk style or that collegiate wrestling, Greco and freestyle. Greco is the one that translates the best, I think, to uh, to fighting, to MMA, um, because of the upright posture, because in MMA we're allowed to hold and punch what we call dirty boxing yeah. and fight off the barrier, <laughs> off, off the cage and stuff. Um, the Greco and all the Greco technique translates really, really nicely to those situations. What did a young Randy Couture, what was it about fighting or wrestling that drew you in? Like, why, why do that? Why not play football or run track? Yeah. Well, I played football. I played soccer. I played baseball. My, my mom always thought baseball was my best sport, but I was bored out of my mind. I <laughs> something else. Um, she would never allow me to box. I wanted to box as a kid. And I was actually sneaking away to the local boxing club. And she found out about it and made me stop. She's like, oh, you can play football, but you are not boxing. Now we laugh. <laughs> like, man, I should have just let you get it out of your system then. Um, yeah, I started wrestling at, at 10. Um, on a whim, you know, I'd heard my whole life what a great wrestler and athlete my, my dad was. And so somewhere, I think, in my young mind, I thought if I turned out for wrestling, maybe he'd come around. Maybe he'd come to matches. Maybe he'd be around. He never saw me wrestle. A single match my entire career um, but I found my calling I found the, the vocation that I seemed to fit right into on a wrestling mat in the practice room those coaches became very very important uh, examples and role models for me guys that would you know kick me in the butt when I needed a good kick in the butt and also the guy that was going to throw his arm around me and say hey it's going to be all right yeah. um, so those you know, so I wrestled through junior high and high school. Um, I ended up becoming a, a one-time state champion my senior year out of Washington State in 1981. <laughs> 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 you know, I didn't get much college love. None of the college coaches were knocking at my door trying to recruit me. Um, ultimately, ended up uh, in the Army. You know, I went, I went to Washington State for a semester. I walked onto the wrestling team there. Uh, that program ended up getting canceled due to Title IX. This is back in the 80s uh, when they were canceling a lot of men's Olympic sports like gymnastics and swimming and wrestling because they didn't bring in revenue to be in, in compliance with Title IX and the gender equity issue. Yeah. Uh, so wrestling was one of those sports that at the collegiate level, it, it got decimated by, by that take uh, and purview. But I still, you know, I ended up joining the Army to support a new blossoming family and uh, ended up in Germany. First duty station was in, in Hanau, West Germany. You know, I was an, trained as an air traffic controller, uh, living on a, just outside of a small concern or base over there in Germany. And they had a local wrestling club. The, the Germans don't do athletics in their schools like we do. Everything in Germany is a club sport, gymnastics. That's kind of, yeah, and that's kind of European, right? That's a European model. I, I end up wrestling uh, on a German club team, and and then there was a lieutenant there that, that was a wrestler from West Point. He's like, hey, man, we're forming a, a post-wrestling team. Uh, you know, you want to be on the post wrestling team. So I ended up on the post wrestling team. We'd go to different bases all over the European theater almost every weekend and wrestle in a tournament somewhere. Ultimately got, you know, 
got got a chance to be on the all army team and and was back on that Olympic dream of being an Olympic wrestler when I thought that had kind of gone away when a, a family was coming on board and and there was no way I was going to be able to afford college or any of those kind of normal routes that take people into the sport of wrestling. It's kind of the uh, kind of living the American dream at some point, I guess. I mean, you're, you know, in, in some ways. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like I did everything backwards. You know? <laughs> I ended up going to college and wrestling at Oklahoma state after six years in the army. So I was a 25 year old freshman at, at Okie state, you know, one of the best wrestling schools in, in the country. And, uh, Everybody's like, who the hell is this old guy? (laughs) Well, when we look at your career and we say, hey, this guy won four championships after the age of 40, that's when you're like, yeah, but I didn't mean to. Like, it just took me that long to get there, right? (laughs) Yeah, I would say I was a late bloomer. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) I know that feeling, I think. Everyone looks at me and says I've gained 20 pounds the last couple years. I'm like, really? Because I think I finally look normal, you know? (laughs) But – well, I want to go back to something. And, like, you basically just gave me a snapshot of, you know, high school, college, your time in the Army, and then finally the precipice of a professional career and what would become one of the most legendary professional careers in your sport. But you said something that resonated with me, and I didn't have this written down as a note, but, hey, sometimes conversations breed themselves. You said you originally started thinking maybe you'd connect with your dad and you'd come to come watch a wrestle. And I know that feeling, you know, my dad lived in the house with us, but he came to two football games from second grade to 12th grade. He came to two football games and uh, one of them was senior night. And he showed up long enough to take that picture. And we all look like we have the prison face on, like nobody's smiling or anything. And and he was gone by the end of the game. And I love my dad. My dad loved me. But like he was a driving force in me playing football. Like I felt that pressure and expectation, but yet he wasn't there. And do you think that's something maybe a lot of athletes can can identify with? You know, it's like, or maybe just even beyond that, like the influence a father has in his son's life, even even if he isn't doing it every single day. Yeah, well, we definitely—it's a very important job, isn't it? You're you're in many ways an example, an example of how to treat women. You know, how to how to be with women and and around the opposite sex. I mean, that our, our fathers are an example of that. So if you're living in a home where there's a lot of <laughs> some type of abuse, maybe it's verbal, uh, you know, sometimes maybe it's physical. That's, that's an example that's imprinted on those kids. I feel like some of us are trying to overcome those first seven years of our life when we're programmed and told we were a bad boy and don't do that. And, and I think we're, many of us are trying to overcome that baggage, that, that, that programming. So, um, yeah, my, you know, I, I got to reconnect with my dad later in, in my fight career. He, he kind of in some ways fled, in my opinion, to Alaska. He worked on the pri- pipeline. He was a welder up there. And in Alaska, he was able to get lost and not yeah. pay support and not have anybody chasing him down, <laughs> garnish his wages or any of that stuff. I mean, that was the truth of the matter. He just wasn't around. And uh, so, you know, again, I, I that uh, those coaches p- putting that attention on me as one of their athletes that turned out, that became very important. You know, I didn't yeah. want to just that guy. Uh, he kind of filled that role in a lot of ways, made me work, taught me work ethic, kicked me in the butt when I was goofing off and not doing what I was supposed to be doing. And, and you know, 
when I lost a match or, or was in a tough spot, you know, was also the guy that was going to kind of counsel me and help me through that situation. So, um, it was nice to, it, it felt strange at first seeing my dad and, you know, I was literally in my thirties when, when he kind of came back into my life and reconnected. And, and it was a little weird because now I'd become a public person. Yeah. Fighting. You know, was he doing this because of that? Or was he genuinely interested in getting, getting to know me? Uh, he didn't care about the public, any of that crap. So I know he, you know, he was interested in reconnecting with me. I think he realized through seeing my kids and uh, that, that he had missed a big part of having a kid and, and yeah. seeing him grow up and all that stuff. So I felt like there was some remorse there and that he, you know, he was trying to make up for some lost time. You know, people can Wikipedia you all day long and I could sing your accolades till the cows come home, but this is the conversation I think worth having because this is how we can have an impact on people's lives. You're a dad and you also have coached people. You have a gym. I know you have a connection to folks that are in that sport. I mean, everything we just talked about, does that influence how you handle yourself as a coach and a dad and a leader, whether you want to be or not? Uh, Absolutely. I think, you know, everything that goes into making us the people we are, and that could be adversity and, and, and bad stuff. Uh, and it can be positive stuff. Uh, I think all of that shapes us and fashions the way we look at the world. Um, certainly those six years I wore that uniform. Um, I think I, I look at the world and, and situations in a particular way from that experience and taking that oath. I think everything my parents put me through, you know, my mom has been married and divorced three times. My dad was never around, certainly as a kid. Those were all things that shaped me, that, that made me the person that I am. And rather than use those adversities and, and those things as excuses to fail, as, as excuses to do stupid shit, frankly, <laughs> I, used it, I used it as motivation to, to prove them wrong, to, to succeed and, and, and try to be the best at something. And, uh, you know, I think everybody has a choice there in, in which direction and which choices they want to make. You're absolutely right. And, and the fact that you chose the Army – for whatever reason it was, you got to believe it had a positive impact in your life. And that's what I tell people all the time when I joined the Marine Corps. Look, my dad was an alcoholic. He loved me. He provided for the family. He showed me what to do. And a lot of times he showed me what not to do. And when I went into the Marine Corps, it wasn't so much I had baggage from that, but I still had a lot I wanted to learn about these honor and courage and commitment and like these traits about being the man I wanted to be. He got me almost there. or He got me as far as he could. Now it was time for me to go figure it out for myself. And, uh, and I've gotten to know you over the last 10 years, and I know there's just so much more to you than fighting that we rarely even talk about that. Also because I'm an idiot and I haven't kept up with the sport, so I just don't have as much to talk about there. Like, that's not the Randy Couture I know, and my friends always aggravate me about it. It's like, really, your friends are Randy Couture and you, and you don't even, like, you know, get to know that part of it. But another part I want to talk about, because it's important to me, is your you're a writer and, uh, and you've written songs and you express yourself that way coming from a world of, of that I understand as a Marine of kind of testosterone and raw masculinity. Is yeah. that a balance for you? Like, is that a necessary balance you think more men should probably look at? Well, I think it's absolutely an emotional release for me. Uh, it's something I started doing when I was in college, you know, 20, 25, 26, 27 years old. Uh, at Oklahoma State as a foreign language and literature major there. Um, 
you know, writing prose, studying some of the classics, certainly the European and German classics, because I majored in German as a foreign language student. Um, that's why I started writing. And it was just something that started coming out of me. You know, it was a lot of things in my life that created and stirred up emotions, winning or losing events, uh, you know, being married at 19 years old, two kids by the time I rolled into Oklahoma State. I mean, uh, there were a lot of things. And, and that was kind of my emotional release where some of that would, would come out. It felt like when I was in turmoil, when there was stuff going on, uh, those things would just come out of me naturally. I didn't really have to think about it. It would just, the ideas would pop into your head and you'd start writing them down. Uh, and, and next thing you know, you, you have a, a poem or some prose or things yeah. like that. Just how it worked. So it was definitely an emotional release for me. Um, and with things like now, when things are smooth sailing, I'm, I'm enjoying life and all that. It, it becomes a little more tedious to try and put it <laughs> paper and, and write something, you know, that, that you're proud of or that, or that you really feel. And, uh, but you know, they still come out. I've got a question. I want to ask you about that, but first I want to take a break. Uh, and we'll be right back with more proud American. Hey folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's list, your go-to home services marketplace for getting all your jobs done. Well, now you might be wondering what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services marketplace connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. All right. So you just said something I think is absolutely um, a part of this conversation, something I want people to, to think about. When you Google Randy Couture, I mean, probably the first thing you see are championships and just winning, winning at life, winning in, in the ring success but you've talked more to me in the last 20 minutes about adversity do you think that those go hand in hand i mean do, when you look at your life do you see adversity as kind of those key points in life or do you see your successes i think the adversity is is, is way more important uh, it forces us to really examine who we are what we're doing how we keep ending up in some of these situations uh it, it forces us to you know Losing, I'm, I'm more proud of some of the fights that I lost than I, than I am the ones that I won. They forced me to really examine 
who I am and what I'm doing and wh- how I'm training, how I'm preparing to make adjustments, make changes, and ultimately made me a better athlete and I think a better person. Having gotten through those those losses and you know some of them were devastating losses. I spent four years, well actually from '88 to 2000, I was in the mix trying to make that Olympic team, trying to accomplish that goal. I came up short, especially in 92 and 96, as the number one guy in my weight class that everybody thought was going to make those teams and win medals in, in those Olympics. And I managed to lose in the, in the finals trials. In the last, <laughs> you know, Having won and had a lot of success, never accomplished that goal. And, and it, you know, especially in the quadranium, it taking four years to get to that point in your life I mean, that's a lot of time and energy, a lot of sacrifices with my family and 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 people that mattered to me, uh, and then to come up short. I mean, it, it was a tough thing to, to swallow, but I think that prepared me and kept me hungry and kept the fire in me when MMA came on the scene. Yeah, and I think if I won that medal in '92 or '96. I'd probably be a college coach somewhere in, in this country, wrestling, you know, coaching wrestling. I would have never forayed into MMA and I would have missed out on, on all those experiences on all that other stuff. So, um, and we probably wouldn't be sitting here having this <laughs> right now. Um, I don't know how many wrestling coaches you've had on the show. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm inspired to go find one. How about that? <laughs> I know there's a story there. I'm not a former one now. So maybe <laughs> Well, that, and that's like, I got cold chills when you made that connection. Like, hey, if I hadn't, have, if I hadn't have missed out here, I wouldn't have succeeded there. And man, isn't that a message for people that we probably need to hear right now? Like, isn't that something that people need to take into account? I feel like we live in this instant gratification world. You touch a cell phone three times, you've got what you want. And this idea that not that long ago, you know, missing out on what you thought might be the definitive moment in your career is actually what gave birth to your definitive career. Yeah. You, you just don't know. You don't know how things are going to work out, what doors are going to open for you. And even when those doors do open, you still have to make the decision to, to commit to that, to walk through that door and try to make the most of it. I would have never in a million years assumed I'd be fighting. You know, yeah, wrestling is, is not that far from fighting, but, you know, it's, it's a pretty big leap from being an Olympic wrestler to fighting in a cage, uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, you, the, the opportunities presented themselves. I saw the connection, I saw the use and assimilation of, of years and years of training to be a professional athlete and, and walk through that door and committed to it a hundred percent. I left my coaching job at Oregon state to pursue fighting full time, which was a scary proposition. I had no idea if I was going to be, you know, successful and have longevity in that and, and, and how that was going to work out. I think my mom and, and some of my family thought I was nuts, but here <laughs> we are. I, you know, and that's the thing it, you hear successful people say that and it's because I, I told somebody the other day, like I'm, I'm, I would never be a good entrepreneur because I think you got to be just in that gray area between brilliant and crazy. You really do to be a successful at just about anything, right? Like you got to be smart enough to do it but crazy or ignorant enough to not think about all the reasons why you can't succeed. And I don't even know if I have that. And so I look at someone like you and I think, man, just give me a little bit of that in a bottle. Let me take it as a potion and I'll go take over the world, you know? Yeah. 
I, I think resilience is something we all need to practice. We all need to look at the adversity in our life and, and embrace that, that those are the things that are going to make us better. That force us really analyze where we're at, where we're going, what we want, what we're willing to put up with and what we're not willing to put up with. Yeah. Well, so you go through this, you have this amazing career fighting. Um, you end up, uh, you know, retiring a couple of times there because, you know, once isn't enough for a guy like you. Uh, and then you get into acting. How, how did you make that transition? Was that just like you were just messing around or did you dedicate yourself to it? Like, how did you make that transition? Well, again, one of those doors that opened, you got a call from the UFC saying, hey, they're looking for authentic cage fighters for this scene in this movie. You know, are you interested? And I'd already done a, a little Nations Bank commercial uh, for the 96 games in Atlanta. It was a regional commercial. They were one of the big sponsors for the Olympics. They wanted kind of the farm boy goes to, to the Olympic <laughs> store. We, we filmed all this stuff, me running through a farm field, doing pull-ups in a barn, all this kind of stuff for Nations Bank. And that was a SAG gig. So I was half-heartedly into having a SAG card. I get this call from the UFC about playing a, a small role in a movie as a fighter. No stretch there. Um, and, and me, Chuck, and Tito all played a small role in this movie, Cradle to the Grave, with Jet Li and DMX. This is back in the early 2000s. I think the movie aired in 2003. Uh, but that was my first feature film experience. It's like going to Oz. You got to get to go to Oz, see how they make all the smoke and fire. And you get see behind the curtain. curtain. Yeah. Yeah. Person <laughs> and making all that noise and making all that smoke and fire. It was really intriguing to me. I've been a movie fan since I was a kid. My mom used to take us on Saturdays to the Lynn Twin Theater for the double feature and leave us for five hours at the double feature because I think because she got a break. And uh, so I always loved the cinema. I loved going to the movies. I never saw myself you know, acting or being involved in the other side of that. And uh, again, just one of those opportunities that occurred and I made a decision that I was intrigued with it and went out, started taking some acting classes, ended up getting an agent, which is not an easy thing to do. It's this catch 22. Okay. Well, where have you worked? And Oh yeah, you can't get a job unless you have an agent. So it's kind of this weird scenario. <laughs> uh, so, you didn't just uh, say, do you know who I am? You didn't just say, hey, do you know who I am? <laughs> that was definitely a, a leg up for me as, a, as an athlete who'd been fighting and, and been on pay-per-view and had a, a built-in audience. Uh, they were a lot more willing to, to take me on because they knew I brought eyeballs to the, to the project. Yeah. And so I, then I had to kind of balance this. Well, are you just offering this me this role because you know all the fight fans are going to tune in? <laughs> <laughs> are you genuinely interested in me as an actor and helping me become better at this craft. And, and there was a balance in that as well. I had to walk away and stay away from fight movies. That's how everybody already saw me. Yeah. And things that were more challenging. Uh, I know I, I knew I brought a physicality and authenticity to those roles. And that's why they were interested in me as well as the built-in audience that I brought to the project. So uh, trying to take, roles that were going to move me, challenge me, move the needle as far as my acting career was concerned. So what you're saying is you take this seriously. This is a career move and it's an art that you're, I'd say, pretty successful at. If people haven't heard of these movies called The Expendables, you've played an integral role in those. I mean, you're, 
you know, you walk on set, you're with a guy named Sylvester Stallone, a couple people might know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Wesley Snipes, Bruce Willis, and you've got your equal place there among, you know, what is legends in the movie industry, but really just people that have inspired men around the country to, to go out and just get it done. And you're one of those people. And you feel that to be, is that just a fun project? Is that an honor? Like, how do you feel about that? Uh, both. Certainly an honor. Certainly a pinch me moment being on set with all those guys, those same guys I grew up watching and like, oh, yeah. my God, you know, Rambo and, and Rocky and, and, you know, Commando and all these crazy movies and, you know, die hard. You know, <laughs> and on set with these guys is like, man, what am I doing here? This is crazy. Uh, but I think some ways in that ensemble cast, for sure, that a lot of us felt that way. Yeah, I remember. Venables 2, we're in a tent getting geared up for this scene where we're all going to go out, all the expendables. I think there was like 16 of us, and we were all going to shoot and try to kill Jean-Claude Van Damme. In this <laughs> and we're in this tent getting geared up, and I'm standing next to, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I'm looking across at Chuck Norris, and we're all just kind of looking at each other like, this is surreal. This is a crazy moment to have all of us. <laughs> Same spot, doing doing what we were doing. It was, you know, it was definitely one of those pinch me moments. I've got to tell a story real quick, and so we'll get back to expendables. I know you've got some some exciting stuff there, but I got to tell a story real quick. I think people appreciate listening to. So you know, I said earlier I was making fun of myself for not being fully tuned in to this sport that you're that you're such a, a big part of and a legend in. And I remember, I think back in 2018, I was like, Hey man, you want to go hunting with me with, with a couple of my buddies? And they're like, yeah, sure. So we pick you up and we go, we get to the hunting lodge. You're like, and then in the most quiet, unassuming way ever, you're like, Hey, do you guys have cable? You mind if I turn the TV on? There's a fight tonight. And, uh, and so our, our host who's also named Danny is like, yeah, sure. You know, so we turn it on and uh, we go and it's, I think it's Tito Ortiz fighting Chuck Liddell in 2018 in this like revamp their career fight. And these are two guys that were, that were an integral part of your career. And I pulled you away from like going to that fight or probably doing TV and you're on a hunting trip with me. Like, and I'm sitting there thinking I'm the biggest idiot ever. Like I didn't even know this was going to happen. Like I felt terrible. And, uh, and I'm like, I bet he just is only here. Cause he said, yeah, I didn't know the dates. And, uh, but you know, it really impressed me. Like it just showed me that, you know, not only are you a normal guy, but you're just a good friend. And, uh, and it was, I was really honored to sit there and watch that fight with you. Yeah, it was fun. And that, that was a really fun event. Uh, you know, going on that hunt trip, you know, meeting Steve Ferris and, and all the stuff that we did on that, in that weekend, colder than hell, but it was a blast. Really <laughs> great time doing it. So I appreciated the invitation. And I don't think I honestly would have been at, at the Chuck and Tito fight. Anyway, I, I, I'm good friends with both of those guys, even though we both beat the hell out of each other and, and fought, uh, but they're great guys. I, I was kind of honestly a, a little sad that, that see them both in, you know, into their forties kind of past it. Both had been out a while. I felt like I was watching a geriatric version of those <laughs> guys trying to fight each other. It was a little odd, but, uh, you know, obviously it worked out for Tito. He, he got one back because Chuck had two wins over him earlier yeah. in their career but, uh, and, and good for him. But uh, I just felt like, you know, these guys don't need to be getting punched in the face anymore. They should have been kind of over that whole thing. But uh, did you call them up and say, hey, have you considered that? Both, <laughs> both still trying to compete to this day right now. I think Tito's getting ready to 
to do one of those crossover boxing matches. And Chuck's talking about getting into the bare knuckle fighting uh, in his career, which, you know, good, good for them. That's still in their heart. Do you have an opinion on these these kind of celebrity boxing matches that that some like Conor McGregor went into the one with, um, Floyd. Uh, yeah Floyd and it's like um, what does that mean? Is that does UFC or mixed martial arts need to do that to stay popular, or is that just kind of the capitalist nature of things? Like what what are you what's your feelings? Yeah, on? I definitely feel like it's the capitalist nature of things, and and I think if anything good came out of all of that, and now we're seeing what. Jake and Logan Paul, you know, call yeah. out MMA, MMA guys. And interestingly, that you know, they only call out guys with strong wrestling backgrounds. <laughs> the guys that got strong striking backgrounds <laughs> for these crossover fights. But uh, I think if any good comes out of that, it's shining a light on the disparaging difference between what a lot of our mixed martial artists are getting paid for, for their profession versus yeah. what boxers are getting paid in their profession. And there's a huge distinction between the two sports in pay and, and the amount of revenue that comes in from any one event that those boxers, they get a huge, a much bigger share of that pie that goes directly to the fighters. You know, mixed martial arts in any one event, 13 to 15% of the money that comes in for that event goes to the fighters. That's ridiculous. Wow. Show me another professional sport in our society where that's the case. You know, box, uh, football, basketball, baseball, those guys, you know, 40%, 50%, 55% of that revenue is going to those athletes that are making that commitment. Um, boxers, it's 60 to 75% of that money goes to the fighters that fought on that card. So 13 to 15% is, is despicable, in my opinion. The, the MMA fighters should be getting a larger piece of that pie for the you know the courage and the work that they put in to go up and step in that cage sounds like there's a, a role to be filled to lead uh, to lead the politics side of this is that something you're, you're interested in or thinking about i've spoke in congress twice um been doing a lot of door knocking there over the last four years trying to get the muhammad ali act which is the federal legislation that was implemented in 1996 to create transparency in boxing and, and protect boxers from Promoters like Bob Arum and Don King, who is taking a lot, uh, taking advantage of a lot of boxers. We're trying to get that that federal legislation amended. Just change the definition from boxing to combative sports athlete. You adjust some of the round terminology because MMA rounds and and grappling rounds and some of the other combative sports that are on pay per view and professional endeavors now. Uh, use different rounds than boxing, but other than that, it's a very small adjustment in the definition. And then we would have the same transparency and federal protection that boxers enjoy. That's why Floyd Mayweather's able to represent himself as a promoter and strike his own deals with Showtime and HBO and make the crazy money that he makes every single fight. Same with Canelo and a lot of these top boxers, Manny Pacquiao. They're able to represent themselves. Uh, and there's transparency in their industry. So when they fight on a card, they know exactly how much money came into that promoter and and it's easy for them then to negotiate their fair value in the marketplace. Um, and we don't, we don't enjoy that in MMA, unfortunately. You're a, you're a leader. You're a man among men. I know that personally, and, and people have had a chance to hear it on this uh, podcast. And I just want to, before we close it up here, you know, what's next? What else you got going on that you want people to know about? Well, I, I, I've been involved in producing some 
some films and TV shows, uh, but I finally really kind of put my own skin in the game here this last year and, and was uh, partnered up and funded a movie. Uh, Mindy, my, my girlfriend, wrote this script called The Demon Pit, Dark Angels. She took all the female characters from human religions and, and kind of brought them all together uh, in, a, in a human morality story, which I really fell in love with. Uh, this She wrote it about five years ago. It's taken me all this time to kind of put all the right pieces in place. And here in February, we got to shoot that film. Uh, it's in post-production now. I think Sony is going to pick it up. So you'll see it somewhere. I'm not sure if it'll be on a digital platform or where it will end up, but very excited to be kind of wearing the real producer's hat <laughs> in the game, uh, not just lending my, my acting to, to it, um, but, but being involved in developing this project and, uh, we're, uh, we're working on writing the, the second script, the sequel to, to that. Um, I just got my contract in the script for Expendables 4. Uh, oh. I leave here October 1st for Europe to uh, start filming uh, a new Expendables. So excited to see the guys again. Uh, <laughs> it's all the old old guys coming back. Uh, you know, Statham, Dolph, uh, Wesley Snipes, um, Antonio Banderas is coming back. From, oh, wow. from Venables 3 for this one. And then myself, obviously, and Sylvester Stallone. There will be some new characters there, but I have not heard who they've cast. <laughs> <laughs> and they keep those things pretty tight, you know, pretty closely. We don't closely. get to we don't get to break news here on the podcast. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> it's gonna be a it's a crazy script. I, every time I read one of these, I'm like, how in the hell are we gonna do any of this? <laughs> A while, but uh, movie magic, man, they they pull it off. So definitely excited for that endeavor. Heading heading out October first for that. Well, we're going to be looking for you. I, I my son was we're looking for another kind of movie canon. So we're about to start Expendables. He don't, he's old enough now to watch them. So we're about to do that together, and maybe we'll get it done just in time for number four. Uh, brother, thank you so much. I know all you do uh, to help others and to just be a shining light to people. And I really appreciate your friendship and appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks, Ben. In a world so connected, it's rare to find someone who still connects with people. Randy had a legendary career in mixed martial arts. He became a champion four times after the age of 40. But as you just heard, that was just the beginning of the mark he'll leave on the world. Randy Couture truly is a proud American. To hear more stories like this, visit foxnewspodcast.com. And be sure to check back next week for a brand new Proud American Story. I'm Johnny Joey Jones, and thank you all for listening. Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.